So, good evening, everyone. Any questions? Yes, Vaishnav Nanda. Um, as far as Anarthas, I, I don't quite understand um, how someone um, can get rid of all of their Anarthas. So I guess my question is, um, how much is a devotee supposed to um, alleviate Anarthas? I mean, isn't there, isn't, I'm confused with pure devotion and anarthas, and um, I, I'm just a little in the, don't understand. Um. Okay, well, I'll say something about that and see if I can help bring some clarity to you, to your understanding on this. First of all, for those who are uninformed, anarthas really means false values. So we are all preoccupied with some false values. And conducting ourselves, you know, accordingly in pursuit of such. And that's just the nature of material existence. And so the question is, or the discussion is, is, uh, and sometimes there's, we feel there's a lot of them <laughs> that we are preoccupied with. We, we, we hear a philosophy, the teaching, we think this is ideal, and these other pursuits and uh, uh, false values, bad habits, and so forth, that follow in pursuit of false values um, seem rather extensive that our preoccupation with them is considerable. And in spite of theoretical understanding, good advice, and so forth, good association and spiritual practice, they seem to remain, linger, and then maybe the question is, have you got rid of all of these? <laughs> Become pure? Or could I do fifty percent of that work? And I mean, it seems like a lot, a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, a big endeavor. And um, in order to arrive at pure devotion, pure devotion means just that it's pure. It has no other, no other concern, no other interest. And so, one way to to to, to think about it is that there is a path of pure devotion, shuddha bhakti, pure, shuddha means pure, bhakti means love, mm. devotion, difficult to translate, it means means to give and, and to take, comes from the root budge, it, it means to enter into reciprocal dealings, where there's give and take with the absolute, so bhakti, shuddha bhakti, pure, the dealings are pure, means that the, the give and the take is is that I'm not giving in order to, to take. I'm not uh, I'm not in a, a merchant, but a servant. I'm not doing a material kind of negotiation with, with the Godhead. I'll give you this, you, you give me that in terms of material things. But nonetheless, it's, it's entering into a reciprocal relationship where you give yourself completely and the Godhead gives himself back and so forth. And this forms a compact of, of love that... Um, that we call prem. So, Shuddha Bhakti comes along before prem, and 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 before attaining Shuddha Bhakti, pure devotion, then um, one may be on the path of pure devotion. Nonetheless, in other words, we've identified with the path that the ideal, the the value, is that we're after. 
the, the, the quality, whatever, experience, the artha, the, the, the value, that, that which is worth attaining, is real and not false and uh, enduring and, uh, and so forth. So we want that. And we, there's a philosophy that, that, it, that explains it and there's a path to tread and so forth. So one can be on the path of pure devotion and be, be a pure devotee in that sense that I'm practicing Shuddha Bhakti. This is my ideal. This is my goal. And, um, but one may not be entirely pure in his or her practice yet. And um, that comes later on at the stage of, of, of Ruchi, where Mahaprabhu, in explaining that stage, says, Nadanum, Nadanum, Nasundurim, Kovitam Ba, that I don't want this, I don't want that. And, and he speaks of, in, in brief and poetically, in a way that all of the false values are represented. Nadanam, Najanam, Nasundarim, Kovitamba. And um and conver- and and conversely, well what do you what do you want then? They don't want anything of um from this side, from the from the material side, I don't want any fame or recognition on of uh I don't uh want any material relationship, uh wealth, uh, power, strength. Uh, in, in in a few words, actually, if you study carefully, and I've given some commentary on this in my my uh, explanation of this in my commentary on Shikshastakam, uh, which was worth worth reading. How these words nadanam nadanam nasunam represent the whole of material uh, existence. Uh, so he's finished with that. So he doesn't want that. What, what do you want? He says, "Mama Janmani Janmani Bhakti He's attached to bhakti. He only wants to do bhakti. So this is pure devotion, but praying, love of Krishna, this is coming much, much later. This is even in the stage of sadhana or spiritual practice. One becomes pure means he doesn't want anything else. He only wants this. He has attachment or she has attachment to the path. In time, that will fall, will fall as attachment to the, to the object that the path is, directs us to, to Bhagavan in a particular way. Attachment to the practice of bhakti and attachment comes to the, to the, object to whom that bhakti is offered in a particular way. It takes a particular shape, that bhakti. And Bhagwan, the object, appears in a particular way as the friend, as the lover, and so forth. And a corresponding identity develops within the practitioner. And then one enters into, into Bhagavad Bhakti, which is a kind of interim perfection, if you will, that where prema is, is, uh, is directly cultivated. So... Mm. It's the path of pure devotion. When the devotion becomes pure, when there's no other interest, and in cultivating pure devotion, and free from any other interest, he eventually develops into prem. So uh, it's it is it's, it's it is a long haul, but we may be encouraged by the fact that we're on the path of pure devotion. So it's a it's a high ideal. We may be discouraged by our failure, it appears, to uh, attain it, but then again, the person may be evaluated by the path they choose, not as much as perhaps where on the path they may be, but the path they choose says something about them, certainly in Krishna's eyes. If we choose, and after all, you you have other interests, but you choose a path 
that is without any other interest, that, 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 is, that asks for everything, your whole heart, and that's what you aspire for. So you will become what you aspire for, that's for sure. And it may seem distant, but and, and not within our power to reach. And that's a good and accurate assessment of the fact. It's not within our power to reach, but because of the power and of the, the power of the affection of Krishna, it becomes possible. So the way in which those anarthas, if you will, are transcended and retired and overcome is by the power of Krishna who's, who we invite into our lives. That's why our method, if you will, oh, is, is kind of an effortless effort. The effort is to attract Krishna's attention and he'll do the work something like that work that's otherwise impossible. Um, and Krishna's pretty nice, you know, pretty attractive. You hear about it. Like you heard this morning, it's, it's nice to hear about Krishna. So you have to get yourself in an environment where you, with good company where you could hear these things. And you thought, this is pretty interesting and absorbing and attractive and so forth. And the attraction just um, uh, causes other interests to pale in due course of time. Um, and that time maybe, you know, may, may take take some time, depending on where we are in this life, where we've come from in the last life, and so forth. Many of the, many of the anarthas that we have now, the things that get in the way of our practice, they'll be gone in your next life. That's the power of bhakti. All of it won't necessarily show up in this life, but all the investment that you make in service, and hearing, and chanting, and so forth, it doesn't fructify in a tangible way from your perspective does to some extent, but perhaps not enough, and so forth. And certain things hound you and and continue to chain you down, and so forth. In this life, from, from being free to go, you know, run down the path, so to speak. You got like shackles on your feet. You know, you're the prisoner. You're making a break, but uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> the chains are reminding you of your uh, of your past and of your present reality and so forth, so hobbling, hobbling down the path. Um, but um, to, to a large extent, those chains will be, will be broken in the next life. Your next life will be very, very different. Things that, that you tr- things that you try to overcome in this life in the context of cultivating a relationship with Krishna that you can't, they'll be overcome either entirely or to the extent that the next life they'll be easily retired. So you have to have kind of a bigger bigger picture, you have to live in a bigger picture. Um, it's hard because we're in here and now and we live in a credit card society and we want things now. They want Prem now, it sounds good, I'll take it. And our bank balance is not uh, good enough yet to, to, to purchase it. So it takes some time, but we should have confidence, make, make an investment, and we'll get glimpses here and there. And, uh, and we see others going forward on a path. And that's not relative to their power, but it's relative to where they are in the line of, of, of waiting for grace, something like that, and uh, how well they position themselves to attract that kind of sympathy. So it's accurate to come to the conclusion that I cannot free myself from these anarthas. It's not possible. They're too overwhelming. That's, that's central to the whole concept of the path of bhakti. It's entirely descending, it entirely um, relies upon 
as I say, attracting the sympathy of, of Krishna. So, at the same time, I can understand that it's discouraging when things just ha- hang on to us. We're really hanging on to them, of course, but uh, it appears that they're hanging on to us. Like the fellow who was... Did I tell the story the other night? He was... Some, somewhere I told it. This fellow had a guru, and he and the guru were sitting in the forest, and and um, he was getting good instructions and so forth, and the guru left for traveling. and He's gone for a long time, and after a while, the fellow was thinking that uh, maybe... Uh, Make life a little easier if he instead of just eating roots and things that fell off the trees. If he got a cow, then you know he could have some milk. If he got a cow and got milk, it took you know a fair amount of time to milk the cow. He's thinking if I had a partner, it'd be easier. She could milk the cow, and I could do something else. And you know, so he got a wife, and then he's going to get kids, and so on. And then his spiritual practice kind of went to the background. And lo and behold, after some time, the guru came along and and said, uh, "Well, you've changed." <laughs> Your situation's a lot different right now. And uh, they talked a bit, and then the uh, guru said, Well, let me go and take a bath in, in the river. He said, Well, Luke or Dave, I'd love to come with you, you know, and travel again, but I can't. I, all these, my wife is dragging me down, my, the cow is there, I got to milk her every day. All these things are hanging on to me, just chaining me down. So uh, I, I really wish I'd go. He said, eh, No problem, anyway. I'll go take a bath and come back for dinner. So he goes to the river and take the bath and they're waiting for him and waiting for him, the man and the disciple and his wife and, and where's Guruji? You know, he's, and all of a sudden they hear, help, help. So they go to the river and there's the guru. He's standing in the river and he's holding on to a log. Like a log, like a log had fallen, a tree had fallen in the river. He's holding on to it, help, help. And then and so the disciple says, Guruji, what's the matter? This log is holding me, holding me, holding me in the water. Won't let me go. Uh, I can't get out. Uh, and so then the disciple says, Well, just let go. You know, <laughs> The tree's not holding you, you're holding the tree. And so he let go and looked at him in a mystical way, and then he understood, Oh, yes, that's it. They're not holding me, it's, it's, it's on my side. I'm holding on to them. So you really have to let go. And of course, well, the best way to let go is if you see some greener grass on the other side. <laughs> and that's the idea of bhakti. So this picture is painted of Krishna Leela and the pro- your prospect there and so forth. And the more you hear about that in good company, the more attractive it becomes and you start to aspire for that. And that aspiration is what makes you, actually. You need to get some aspiration to enter into Krishna Leela. And uh, the more specific it becomes and the more c- concise and so forth, then the more power it has. Krishna thinks, you want to have a relationship like that with me? You? Well, that's pretty audacious. But anyway, okay. As they approach me, so I reciprocate accordingly. So it's such an ideal. If you get some identification with that and aspire for that, it has great power. That's the central focus of the whole sadhana. Everything orbits around that, the hearing, the chanting, and so on and so forth. It all orbits around that. Uh, that's why it's important to have a kind of a theoretical anchor in terms of, of, an, of an ideal. So the Vrindavan ideal is very, very high. The more you can hear about that, become attracted to that, the more in a natural way these other things um, can be let go of. Because as I say, there's greener grasses, greener prospects. So. 
greater prospect. So, anyway, it all sounds good, right? But still, I'm chained down by my habits and arthas and so forth. And do I really have to get them up, become per- give them up, become perfect? Well, again, I don't think that. I think it's good to think that perfection may take time. Hmm? Not such that I may take a license to, to take it easy. It will take that much more time. I've said sometimes that perfection uh, won't come in one life, but in one life it will come. And when we think like this, in this life it will come. I want so then a few lives like that, then it will come, something like that. So, um, but that again, you have to see this life is one frame in the whole movie of your of your life, of your existence, and. Uh, we get frustrated sometimes because we're trying to make the whole movie out of the one frame. And someone who has a broader perspective feels comfortable. According to your stage, I see certain things in place. Ah, that's good. Those are huge uh, foundational stones that he's talking about. The guru, for example, he feels comfortable. This is in place in this lifetime. And uh, he's not really concerned. We're concerned because we're, you know, immediately weighted down by the shackles of our anarthas and troubled by them, and there's that, that conflict. But, you know, lose a battle, win the war is the kind of idea. You will be successful. That's what Krishna tells Arjuna in the Gita, very, very affectionately. He said, when Krishna wonders, when Arjuna wonders, how will I, what if I'm not successful in this path of yoga? Or one might think, well, bhakti yoga, what if I'm not successful? Then what? What will become of me? He says, Tata means, my dear, my dear one. He, he, he looks to Arjuna and says, Oh, don't think like that. Don't even think like that. That's what he's saying. You'll be successful. Look at you what you want. You want this pure devotion and praying. This is what you want. You know how many people want that? Practically nobody even is interested in me but to speak of wanting that. Some people want me for material benefits. Some people want me to get liberation. I give that to them readily. Some people don't even, aren't even interested at all. And you want that, such a rare thing that you're interested in that. You know, you'll be successful. Such, a, such an ideal. You can see how dear that is to Krishna. These devotees that relate with Krishna in intimacy, they're his whole life. You want to be like one of them? That's very attractive to him. So he says to Arjuna, if we look at it in the context of bhakti, he says to Arjuna, don't worry, don't even think about that. Don't even give that a second thought. With much affection, tata, nahi kalyana krit tata gachati. Sridhar Maharaj used to translate it, sincerity is invincible. So, satyam eva jayate. Truth is, is, will always be victorious. It may take time, right? But, It'll be victorious. So you have to have that kind of confidence and then have some solace in your life as a sadhaka. What path I'm on. Not as much as how far along I am, but what path I'm on. And that's where I'll... The, the goal of that, the sadhya of that, is where I'll end up. So it may take some time. But in relation to lifetimes, so much of our uh, troubles and so forth in this lifetime are a result of the previous lifetime. We bear them, we try to uh, overcome them and take shelter of Krishna and get strength. So, but our ability to do so may not be so strong. 
but that effort is is a huge investment of our time. Huge. I mean, a little investment there goes so far. I mean, almost you'd be better off investing a little energy in bhakti than a whole lot of energy in something else to relieve, or relieve anartha. You might buy you might buy one but to some extent in this lifetime, but by a little bhakti, surely it'll be gone in the next lifetime. So, it, you know, you have to have a little bit of further reaching kind of perspective and take solace from the fact that you're trying to do the right right thing, even in spite of weakness and so forth. I mean, you know, I've known you for many years. How do I look at you? I always have a very generous outlook. I'm always very affectionate to you and so forth. So how does Krishna think about you? Some must be some way similar, despite your shortcomings and so forth that you you perceive and that, that uh, I'm also well aware of. And, and so you think, wow, you know, I got a good friend. <laughs> My position's pretty good. Someone, if someone of spiritual consequence cares about us, what the hell more could we want, you know? That's huge. If someone who's dear to Krishna thinks affectionately towards us, wow, we've really gone a long way here. I mean, that's the only way to get Krishna's attention. He's absorbed in those people. Those people, many of them have some experience of suffering in the world. Therefore, the guru is sometimes called Kripa Shakti of Bhagawan. Krishna is just absorbed with his, in his Sarup Shakti in love with his devotees and he has no experience of suffering. So, Without that, hard to be compassionate. So is Krishna uncompassionate? No, he has Kripa Shakti. It manifests as his devotees who have had experience of suffering readily. And so they have, it's easy to have empathy if you had the experience, right? So they do, and, and, and if the, some, someone like that cares about us, thinks about us, thinks affectionately about we that's a huge accomplishment. Let me think of it like this. Let's say you want to meet... President Obama, you know, how are you going to get the audience of, his, of President Obama? But if someone dear to him, like his daughter, somehow, you know, falls in love with you, or I don't know how old she is, but, uh, you know, you go a long way all of a sudden. You're the same guy, but there you are. You're, you're at the White House dinner, you know. <laughs> so there are those that have endeared themselves um, to Bhagawan and um, and to get them to think affection. This is love psychology. It's very practical. If I, if you love, if I love you and then you find out I love somebody else, then naturally your love goes to them to an, ex- to an extent. You're sympathetic to them and so forth. Oh, you like someone who's dear to me. So that's why we call it Vaishnavism, to become attached to a Vaishnav. Then that's something that you see that that will stay with us. That's not going, that's going to carry into your life, next lifetime in a big way. You'll hit the ground running, so to speak. We see some devotees hit the ground running, and then, of course, they, they go through their life a certain period of years where they're experiencing um, karma from the previous life until it clears, there's a clearing, and then their devotional background from the previous life comes to the fore. And it's like they're a fish in the water, something like that. Some people are, you know, like this, you know, testing out the water, a little cold, I'm not sure, you know. And so, so it's accumulation, it takes, it takes time. But everybody's great to be on a great path. And, uh, and it's a great, great uh, journey. It's a huge accomplishment just to overcome an art, so to speak, of develop real affinity and attachment for that, which is, is of value. 
So, I mean, we talk about it as a small thing. I know it doesn't sound small to you when you have, you're troubled by so many things, but it's a different vantage point. Hmm? But we hear these kind of generous statements from the guru and sadhus and shastras, but that's the real vantage point. Again, we're locked into, you know, this, this frame of our life and it's, it's um, sometimes all, all we, can, we can see. I've often cited the example of Puttipatshita Maharaj. If you want to go to Mount Everest, the highest mountain, and then to get there, you'll have to go through the foothills. So the foothills go like this. So sometimes it seems like you're going down. He's going down. But from the broader perspective, hey, we're going down. We're supposed to go up. No. The broader perspective, you see, he's going up all the time. So I know I've said these things before, and some of you have heard them. And, you know, you have to listen to them, and you have to take solace from that. And... Uh, in spite of your um, present um, unwanted, uh, uh, if you will, wants, <laughs> unwanted wants that you have, you're making progress by cultivating attachment to saintly people and to Krishna. Did you have a question? So, something else? We have anartha nivriti and artha pravriti. So, anartha... Nibriti means like renouncing, letting go of anartha, false arthas. And then we have artha pravriti. Pravriti means to like, um, it it's actually means like attachment. So, so attachment to that which is of value. And the little artha pravriti can be there in the beginning. And that's what fuels the, the anartha nibriti, the letting go of unwanted things is some attachment to that which is really wanted, that's really of value, a little. And then when a major anarthas are lifted, sort of cleared, then one has more freedom to practice, that's, that's, that's a fact, more freedom to, more capacity to absorb oneself and, and so forth. All the flowers do not bloom in the garden at the same time. Some are late bloomers, but they'll bloom. Hmm? And they may bloom even in a bigger way than the than ones that bloomed before them. So, but they have the seed of bhakti. Some watering is there in the form of hearing and chanting. It will blossom. It will bloom and blossom and bear fruit of love of God in due course of time. Yes, Obviously, we, when we have, when we can see that there's anarchas or there's issues or there's tendencies, and we have the power to recognize those, I suppose, and to not necessarily act on them. Like if I'm driving on the freeway and somebody cuts me off, I don't have to get angry and curse them. But to a certain degree, obviously, there's a lot of anarchas that uh, we can't do anything about. Like my tendency to get mad in the first place, I can't really, there's nothing I can do. Is it necessary to invite Krishna to remove those, or is it simply by chanting as purely as we can, will that happen automatically? Is it necessary to be aware of any of that? Or? Uh, I think that awareness of the of our important artist does come to the fore when you pray, for the most part, the main blocks kind of come automatically on the mind as the task at hand, so to speak. 
and and at least at that time, then you can you can petition Krishna for the strength to overcome those that are really coming to the fore and are obvious, that, and then there are other ones will come and so forth. But the whole entirety of it, no, you don't have to go and search it out. As it's coming to the coming to to the point where it, it's now, this should be dealt with, and it'll keep coming. This should be dealt with. This should be. Dealt with. Something like that. Then you can focus on a particular anartha in a positive way, in, re- in relation to attracting Krishna's st- attention and strength, and having the power from the name, of, of, for example, the holy name. You can chant and and with an aspiration to overcome such an anartha for the sake of being able to serve Krishna more readily and and, and so forth. And that will be helpful. That will be powerful. Radhanjitamani. So, um, different levels of anarchists, um, I mean, I'm asking how they are, so I think certain things that we should 100% avoid, um, things that would be very disturbing to our spiritual progress. Yeah, the most, there are different types of um, things, as you say, um, impediments. There are anarthas that come from good behavior, and like good karma, like for example, um, you get a big inheritance, and it looks like wow, you know, I've got a prospect here, I could be happy. And I've seen people get neophyte uh, devotees be ha- have have that happen, and they get carried out out of the stream of bhakti by the anartha that comes from their good karma. So from the past, they had the karma to inherit millions of dollars and they inherited it and it got in the way of their bhakti. You follow? It carried them out of the stream, into the, out of the main current into the world and, and it's, it's created this powerful illusion for them that there was a prospect and people were attracted to them. And other devotees who have desires want them. So he'll give a donation, you know. The guy becomes real, real popular and gets special treatment and all. This is a huge problem. So then there's an arthas that come from nuskrita, from, from, from misbehavior and so forth. But these are all rooted in, in, on this side, in the material side of, of, of our life. There's a spiritual side to our life. And the root of that is our association with saintly people, right? And that's where the mool of janma, the birth of bhakti, is in sadhusanga, associating with saintly persons. Is where it comes from. So there are anarthas then that come from aparad or offense. So that's like the difference between, a, if you will, to use a crude kind of term, a sin of the flesh and a sin of the soul. You follow me? So when you go against bhakti, that creates a great, much greater impediment to bhakti than when you do things materially that cause a, potentially a distraction from bhakti, a preoccupation that doesn't allow you to get free and, and occupy yourself with bhakti and the path and so forth. You've got bad karma, so you, you know, you've, got, you've got a problem whatever, you know, you got an issue, psychological problem, gets in the way. 
or you got the good karma and, and it's distracted you and you don't have the sense of urgency for spiritual progress. You know, you've got enough money, things are fine, uh, that type of thing. So that's one category, right? And then the, but then if you go, go against bhakti, against the, if you bite the hand that feeds you, then this creates a much, much more, much stronger impediment. And therefore that impediment will, will stay with you all the way into bhav. Bhav means that bhakti has become a deep spiritual, emotional, ecstatic experience for the devotee. Bhava is a ray of the sun of prema. So that, see the power of that impediment. And that's why we, we, we know we talk about it. This Vaishnava Aparad, for example. And, and that's probably the worst type of offense. There's Seva Aparad, offenses in the deity worship. There's Nam Aparad. And so, and Vaishnava Aparad, this is the Dham Aparad, to the Dham, to the holy place. But the Vaishnava Aparad is underscored because, again, that's the hand that feeds us. If we bite that, my goodness, that's not very becoming on our part. So the reaction for that, that will, will carry with us. And these days people do that and they get initiated by people that do that. And then they get initiated into like almost, they can develop a sangskar, a tendency for it. Very dangerous. So uh, these cautions are not un, unwarranted to avoid such things. I mean, look, I've seen havoc in, 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 the, in the devotional community as a result of Vaishnav Aparad, total misunderstanding of the teaching, misrepresentation, uh, huge, huge negative kind of results. So that is kind of almost indelible. I mean, it will be removed in the course of time also. But let's say, you know, somebody is, has a tendency for Vaishnava Aparad, next life they won't be able to associate with the devotees. They may be able to hang around a little bit, you know, but they can't quite fit in and, or something, you know, at best. And they have to go through a whole life like that. I mean, meet people like that. They can't quite get involved. Um, they can't get initiated, you know, they can't, they can't come to that. So that, you know, there may be other reasons. There's a multitude of reasons. But sometimes I see them, I know, this person has, has this, this is his background or her background. That's the problem. And so they have a chance to, to deal with that in this life, and they may not, because they've developed a tendency for it. So that's that's problematic, you see. Otherwise, the other anarthas or impediments, or like I say, false values that we embrace, coming from our inter- interactions in the, in the material world, they're much smaller and easier um, to remove. They're not rooted. They're they're superficial. They don't. They don't touch the soul. They they give us a mind and a disposition and a set of senses and so forth that may be less conducive than otherwise. But they don't really touch the soul. And the Vaishnava Aparada, this kind of Aparada, they kind of touch the soul in a way. That's why they carry into Bhav. Bhav is a liberated condition, but he can't get Prem. You see, until that's removed. They have to wait that out in Bhava Bhakti for that and Arthur to be to be removed to detain to detain Prem. So yes, Gokumar. Well, this is this is a very confusing topic for me, the question of Vaishnava because I think the people who are committing Vaishnava, you know, people you know, all of us at some point or another, you know, don't know 
that we're doing it. And there's a question for me about at what point is just mere discrimination and what mere discrimination between something that's right or wrong or good or bad um, behavior, and also at what point criticism and judgment, and then at what point does it really become something that's worrisome um, in terms of Vaishnava and does it depend on the Vaishnava actually being um, offended, um, actually being mm -hmm. impacted by the act? Because I imagine some Vaishnavas are so compassionate that they're not offended even by very Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, we should use our discrimination and so forth, and we may discriminate not to associate with one sadhu and to associate with another sadhu and evaluate their standing as best we can based on our understanding of the texts and what's to be expected and so on and so forth. And that doesn't uh, fall into the realm of uh, fault-finding and, uh, and so forth. And I think that... Uh, Really, that the the, the uh, you can make an offense out of some ignorance. That's a fact, but and it may be to a superlative devotee. Let's say you don't know anything, and you find some devotee is absorbed in trance and looks like a like a like a bag lady or something, you know, just like oblivious. And, and look at that jerk and throw stones at him. That's what they they did to Sukadev, the speaker of the Bhagavatam. Kids were following and throwing stuff at him, and he was walking around naked. But he didn't know that he, did, he had a body. <laughs> so, uh, but the people in the assembly of uh, learned people recognized him and, and gave him the seat of esteem, and he spoke the Bhagavatam. So, certainly it's offensive on the part of those, those children to be throwing things at, at him. But they don't know any better. There's no intention to offend a saint. <clears throat> Uh, they have no, they don't know what a saint is, they don't identify him as such, and so forth. So this kind of thing is not going to have a lot of power to it. Now you take the other end of the spectrum, and you take a superlative devotee and someone with some knowledge and of, of devotion or considerable knowledge, and they make an offense. That's going to have great, much greater bearing. And um, if the if offense is willful, I mean. It, uh, nobody thinks they make offenses. That's another thing. But other people can objectively see, this is bad, no, this guy's bad. And his envy of the sadhu, and he has malice, he reads a beautiful thing and finds fault in that. Uh, it just, I, I see this, I can't imagine. How's all you can find fault in that? And they do. This is incredible. So, um, when it, really, when it rises to the point of malice and the Vaishnava is of substance, of consequence, an elevated soul. This is where you really, you know, cause yourself some, some difficulty. Otherwise, before that, it's it, it and, and there may be Vaishnavas who are not very elevated, as well. And so, how elevated the Vaishnava is is going to make have some determination, determining factor, on the consequence of such, and how much knowledge you have, and how willfully, and how much malice or lack of it is involved. There's a whole spectrum, right? And the examples given in Chaitanya Charitamrita of Vaishnava Aparada are pretty extreme, actually. Ramchandra Puri, and there was another one who offended Nityananda Prabhu. Ramchandra Puri offended Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And you could see, I mean, look what, look what his mentality was. So this is the mentality that's being highlighted um, with regard to Vaishnava Aparada. Yeah, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was, you know, 
was just lost in the ecstasy of love of God. And this fellow came along and he was a sannyasi, which means he was very learned, right? And he was hearing all these wonderful things about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, so he came to see him. And he saw that in his chamber, his room, there were some ants running on the ground. So he came away from him and said, what kind of sannyasi is this? He must be eating sweets and, uh, and indulging himself in, in, uh, in uh, fancy foods and leaving the crumbs. Otherwise, why would there be ants there? I mean, like, what an extrapolation, you know. <laughs> so this is the example that was given in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Vaishnava Parat. And believe it or not, I've met people like that. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling that someone could come up with that kind of a, you know, interpretation of an event, and so it shows a certain color of their heart and 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 the malice in it and so forth. And again, he was a learned person, a sannyasi, and this is so this is extreme. This was given as an example, and uh, there's another there was another example of similar. I forget the details, but defending him to Tenanda Prabhu and uh, and um, in his travels, so. I think that that we should look at those kind of examples that have been highlighted. There are other stories that seem to make it lighter, but they're not recorded. The recorded, the written ones, and so forth, tend to tend to be. You know, there was the defense of Haridas. Haridas was asked to speak in an assembly about the glories of the holy name, and he began to speak about the the side effect of the name could could clear all anarthas and and so forth, and bring liberation, and a learned Brahmin, again, a learned person, pundit in the assembly, got up and challenged him and, uh, and, uh, and, and publicly said, you know, that, um, what did he say to him? Something like, uh, I forget, but he made some criticism and so forth, and uh, he said, if, if I curse you to have leprosy or something like that, if you don't take that back, and a few days later, he got leprosy himself. You know, so I mean, these are pretty, pretty extreme. Yeah, his nose kind of had leprosy on the nose, and his nose, and he had a really nice nose, as the story goes, a raised nose, and it fell off. He was proud of his nose. And anyway, so, so these are the kind of examples, largely, that have been given. So they, they, they seem to focus on extremes. Uh, almost, that you would think, well, geez, who would be like that? But again, I've met people like that. Um, you can find them on the internet mostly, but uh, <laughs> they're hiding behind a keyboard. They don't want to come out in public, but um, they have their own qualities, you know, seeing for what they are. But anyway, so that's, I think, a good way to, to, to think about that. Um, otherwise, you know, we have to use our discrimination where to associate and, and to sort out, try to understand in a way, and there may be different ways to understand you know, you have to settle issues that are not going to be settled with logic also to progress on the path. Settle them somewhere or other and then get on with the path, is the idea. <laughs> and then you get experience. That's a kind of a side note, but... Um, was there two parts to your question, or did I address it, the whole thing? No, I think that I, think that I addressed okay. most of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we don't want to become, I say... Um, psychotic or neurotic about it. It's not, you know, these things have been, obviously, these things have been used in religion in the past, and within Vaishnavism it has been used. Anything can be abused, the idea of aparad, in order to intimidate people and 
and make them, you know, don't not inquire, which if they do, they'll find out something that, you know, about the person that makes them unworthy of being followed. And, you know, people manipulate. It's just a fact of life. And within the context of religion and spirituality, it happens also. Gurus, even so-called gurus, and manipulating people and getting them in a neurotic about thinking, am I offensive? And did I make that offense? And they, and they, so they use tools like that. But the same thing, it's not to be done away with altogether. It is a reality. So... We try to educate students so they don't become neurotic about it and afraid to ask a question. Like I say, they come in doubt, sit before the guru in doubt. That's what we're supposed to do. But voice the doubts and, and to let them have a chance to be cleared by good, good instruction, good advice, good logic, scriptural reference, and so on and so forth. Some people are so intimidated that, they're, that if they have doubt, they think they're making an offense. I'm having a doubt. And, of course you're having a doubt. I mean, that's the, it's supposed to. This is the world of doubt, no doubt. This is what it's about. And we're talking about faith. You know, we're trying to sell faith in a land of doubt. So it's a task. That's what they say. You know, faith is hard to build and easy to, easy to destroy because we're living in a land of doubt, questioning, and, and, uh, and so forth, which is inhibiting us from you know, going forward and so it's understandable. There's a huge, uh, you know, learning curve. There's a whole s- stage. Anishta bhajana kriya. It means there's going to be ups and downs. Yes. Uh, Guru Maharaj, the reason I asked about Anarthas is um, because <clears throat> not our group, but I've heard devotees speaking about getting rid of Anarthas, and it's almost, it's almost, it seems like a. a a, a, um, like a, a Puritan. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a tendency amongst some to evaluate bhakti through the view bhakti through the lens of morality rather than view morality through the lens of bhakti. And the, re- the reason for this is that our material life. Can you turn on the light? The other one? There you are. <laughs> The, um, our material life runs on two tracks, boga and tyag. Boga means to enjoy, to exploit. Tyag means to, to renounce. So we try to enjoy something, we get tired, but we give it up and so forth. So we go back and forth like this. So this is, means karma and jnan, these two tendencies. Tendency for exploitation, the tendency for renunciation in and of themselves. Now, bhakti is a tendency for dedication which harmonizes the, uh, the tendency of karma and the tendency of, of, of jnana. But because we come to bhakti with these tendencies, like the tendency for exploitation and so forth, then we, in bhakti we understand the, few, the, the problem with an exploitive mentality. And so we want to deal with it. Uh, you know, the devotee should be an upright and righteous person of good character and so on and so forth. So so we'll come into the into the stream, if you will, of, of bhakti, but we'll have a tendency to focus on karma or jnana rather than bhakti, because they loom so large for us. These are the these are the two tracks that our life's been running on. So we miss bhakti and we, we think we want to use bhakti to be a better person, uh, or we use bhakti to become renounced, almost as if as if 
becoming free from anarthas is the whole of bhakti. And without that, you can't practice bhakti. And, and this, is the, this is what you're talking about. This is the big thing, you know. Oh, uh, he did this, you know, and that, ah, you know, it's all, he can't come around, he's bad, you know. And, and, but this is, has nothing to do with the way Krishna teaches about bhakti. He sees morality through the lens of bhakti and sees, oh, that'll clear up in due course of time. Better to focus on bhakti. Just like, what do we ask people to do? We ask people to, um, let's say, smoking is a bad habit. I find it particularly unbecoming, but I hope none of you smoke. But, <laughs> <laughs> but let's say, you know, that's a, it's a bad habit. So do we ask people to stop smoking or do we ask people to, to chant Hare Krishna? We ask them to chant. And we think, yeah, smoke on the outside, you know. And, and we figure that'll, you know, that'll go away in due course of time, something like that. We don't say, okay, first stop smoking, then start chanting. First, you know, but some devotees tend to misunderstand and emphasize in that way. And then they make bhakti into kind of a moralistic uh, form of bhakti that's very close to like fundamentalist, any fundamentalist orientation to religion. It's not, uh, it's not compassionate, it's not kind, it's, you know, just like some fundamentalist Christians or Muslims or Hindus, you know, they want, they, they're ready to do who knows what to somebody in the name of, you know, <laughs> God and, and, and religion and so without any compassion. And so uh, there's, a, there's a tendency, and this is why, because our life runs on these two tracks, of gyan and karma, so we come in, and then you have this the sect that's that of devotees all about renunciation and however renounce, however however little you sleep and however little you eat, they think this is he's advanced, he's advanced, he's, he's hardly eats, he hardly sleeps, and so forth. And uh, this is how they identify with what bhakti is in terms of renunciation or in terms of moral purity, and so the bhakti is entirely different from that altogether. I mean, Krishna is, Krishna is this object of bhakti, and at least in some planes, like Brahmaloki sleeps all the time, practically. <laughs> so, you know, it's not how much you... And he eats a lot, too. And, uh, so, <laughs> it's not how much you eat or how, how... I mean, you shouldn't eat too much, and you shouldn't sleep too much, and so forth, and so on. But it's not a... It's not a the, the, we, can, we don't gauge our bhakti by whether or not we can lay on a bed of nails. But how much feeling we have for Krishna, how much taste we have for Krishna. And that will bring some capacity for renunciation, but our focus is, our renunciation will be, we'll renounce the things that aren't favorable for bhakti. And the things that are, that we'll embrace them. Not renunciation for its own sake, but you see some of these devotees and they're huh, falling asleep, you know. Huh, huh. And it's like they starve themselves, and sleep deprivation and so forth. And, and then they say they've got all kind of indigestion problems from their from their the karma of their disciples and whatever. You know, it's like, you know, hey man, you know, get some rest. <laughs> eat, a, you know, eat something here, you know. <laughs> so these are problems, and we see these type of manifestations of so-called bhakti. The emphasis is on on gyan, which corresponds with renunciation, and with uh, you know, moral purity and so forth. Now, I don't mean to say that moral purity isn't a good thing and that renunciation isn't a good thing, but 
but in, put it in perspective. What is its value unto itself? <laughs> What's the value of morality unto itself? In this world, maybe it has some relative value, but you know, in the next world, you go to heaven for that. And then you come back again, like we spoke this morning. So what's, you know, what's the value of that? Good karma, in other words. And renunciation unto itself. And what's the value of that? Where will that take it? But bhakti, then. And in the context of bhakti, there's some renunciation. If something's not favorable to bhakti, then we should, we should uh, try to give that up. And if something is favorable, then we should embrace it. And then, so, you know, sometimes, that means sometimes you'll be enjoying like anything. Take the feast. The Vaishnava would say, take more, take more. So <laughs> oh, it's really good. I thought, no, more, more. So you, sometimes you have to enjoy <laughs> in the context of bhakti. And sometimes you have to give up and renounce. But the center hub around which this, this enjoying, and that's why Rupa Goswami says, eligibility for bhakti means you can't be too, too, too much of a tendency towards renunciation or too much of a tendency towards bhoga, a little, uh, towards enjoying, a little of both. It's the middle path, the middle, the middle way. It's the middle path. It's taking both. It's harmonizing those two tendencies within us. That we, each of we, either of which, following exclusively, leads us nowhere. One leads us to heaven and back here again, and this staying in the cycle of birth and death. The other one leads us to really an imaginary sense of liberation. If there's a tinge of bhakti, we get some kind of liberation, but. Not preem, not not. We won't get bhakti. Hmm? Mukti with little bhakti, you'll get mukti. But mukti is in bhakti. But bhakti isn't in mukti. <laughs> There's a difference. There's mukti in preem. There's liberation from material existence, but there's no preem in mukti. That's for sure. So this is the idea. And you're right. They have a. Their focus is 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 skewed, and they become puritanical, and very, um, and they can become mean spirited also. First, you have to do this, and you're bad, and and uh, and where you know where's the compassion? Krishna is so compassionate and overlooking, and, and so forth. And that's why we join him. <laughs> Let's face it, you know that. Of all the, to look at all the gods and goddesses. You tell me which is the, the, the be-all and end-all of the gods and goddesses in the Hindu pantheon. Well, if you have any brain at all, you say, well, this one, he's real generous, you know. Maybe relative to my circumstance, but that's the entire of, entirety of humanity is in that circumstance. We need a generous god. <laughs> that's what we need for sure. So there you find it. I mean, the statements of Krishna in relation to bhakti are, are like, they make jnanis and yogis think, how can that be? How is he saying that? He says, You know what he's saying? He's saying it's the ninth chapter of Gita. Krishna becomes so emotional talking about uh, pure devotion. Nearing the end of the chapter, he says, he says, his heart like beating, he says, My, he says, not only does he say, he doesn't say, my devotee's faults should be overlooked. That'd be pretty generous, right? He says, he doesn't say, my devotees who have faults are sadhus. They should be given high regard. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's like pretty extreme. 
In other words, it's one thing to say, why devotees who have faults, those faults should be overlooked. He doesn't. He says more than that there, he says. My devotees, even with their faults, are worshipable. That's how I look at them. And who am I? And what's my perspective? So think about that. And then you think, well, gosh, maybe I should take the path of devotion. <laughs> that has a huge you know, learning curve and a lot of generosity there. And, and the Gyanmarg is very different. I mean, if you have a little mark on you, you're out. You have to go back to... to um, Nishkam Karma Yoga and Nishkam Karma Yoga and so forth. So, Bhakti is very, very, very generous. Krishna is extremely affectionate to it. He, he, this is his nature. So he thrives on affection. So you have some affection, even if it's very undeveloped and so forth, it's going to be attracted to that. So it's a good observation on your part. So, all right, thank you for your questions. We'll stop there. Sibaldi Puni, Mahamutsu Bhatiti Ki Jai, Gaur Bhaktavinda Ki Jai, Ruth Premanandi.